0: This morning's reading comes from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the back of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them the people for his name. And with the words of the prophets we agree, just as is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may see the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Matt. That's a long one. Appreciate you doing that. <laughs> How many of you uh, have seen the movie Notting Hill with Hugh Grant and um, Julia Roberts? In that movie, there's a great scene uh, with a great song. Um, it's, uh, the song is, Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. And in that moment, you see Hugh Grant in the market that's around his house in Notting Hill walking. And they play that whole song, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. And while he's walking, you notice that the seasons are changing. And so at the beginning, you see him walk by someone, and it's like one camera shot. just, And it's showing the progression of time. They want to show you that it's been a year and you see this lady who's walking, who's pregnant. And then at the end of the song, you see her walk by again from, from spring to, to uh, you know, summer and winter and fall. And she has a little baby in her hand. And so that way we know when we look at this, oh, time has passed, right? Or or maybe you've watched Indiana Jones or those other movies that are traveling movies where they're wanting to show you that there's something, they've been in one place and they're going to another place. So they put like a map up on the screen and they show a little airplane with dotted lines flying over there. That way you can go, oh, in this 15 seconds, 10 seconds, I know they've gone, you know, from Egypt to Berlin or, or whatever, and we get an idea of that. Today we're in chapter 15 of Acts. Last week we were in chapter 11 of Acts, and so I want you to think of those two scenes and know that 10 years have passed from the time, about 10 years roughly, from the time when Cornelius is saved that we talked about last week, and and the Gentiles are being brought in, till this point now that we're looking at this council, this meeting that's going to take place in Jerusalem. So in your mind, think of whatever song would help you think of passing time and know that what's taking place, as that song is playing in the back of your head, is disciples are going out. Paul is going out for his first missionary uh, journey. He's doing the amazing work that God has set out for him. Peter is doing things as well and he's leading revival. More and more Gentiles are coming. You hear the song and it's just, and then all of a sudden we end up here. So time has passed. And what's taken place is there's a group of people who are looking around and probably in their hearts thinking our relationship with God and who we are, how we identify ourselves as God's chosen people is being threatened by all these Gentiles who are coming in and beginning to follow Jesus. And so they're like, we've got to put some boundaries on this thing. We cannot let this go willy-nilly. And you know what? We need to have folks not just believe in Jesus. We also need them to get circumcised if they're men. And they also need to follow all the laws that we have been following for all these years that have defined us. So their hearts are saying... And they end up saying it out loud even. We are identified. We are those that are God's by what we do. That's what they're calling out there. That the things that make us God's people are the things that we do. Now, they couch it in the idea of the obedience that we have to the law, right? So it sounds very good. It's the obedience that we have to God's law. That's what makes us God's people. Forgetting that they became God's people before they ever obeyed. That Abraham became God's chosen before he ever did anything. It was counted to him righteousness because he believed, not because of who he was or what he did. And we come to this place that really is an argument, a disagreement about what does it mean to actually be saved? What does it look like for us to move from darkness to light, from death to life, from being outside of God's kingdom to being inside God's kingdom, from being those who were enemies to those who were now children of God? Um, One of the commentators puts it this way. Is the sinner saved by sheer grace of God in and through Jesus Christ crucified when he or she simply believes? That is, they flee to Jesus for refuge. Has Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, done everything necessary for salvation? Or are we saved partly through the grace of Christ? And partly through our own good works and religious performance. Is justification by faith alone or through a mixture of faith and works, grace and law, Jesus and Moses? Are the Gentile believers a sect within Judaism or authentic members of a multinational family? It was not some Jewish cultural practices which were at stake here, but the truth of the gospel and the future of the church. So when these men show up, to where Paul and Barnabas are preaching, and they begin to say, those folks need to get circumcised. It is not about losing some ritual or rule that they had. It was actually a front and an attack on the gospel of grace and the very future of the church. It's the reason why when Paul deals with this in the Galatian church, and he writes to them, he talks very sternly about those who are bringing this out, (laughs) saying you must do this, you must be circumcised. Um, You can go read the book of Galatians. You can look at how sternly he speaks to them about it. But Peter then stands up. That's what we read here, Peter's speech. And then Paul and Barnabas talk about what God has been doing. And then James says, this is what I think we Should do. So, what is it that Peter says for us that reminds us of what actually the gospel is? What is it that saves us? He says this And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as well, and He makes no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He goes on and says, we should not put this yoke on their neck that we ourselves cannot bear, but we know that we are believed, that we believe that we will be saved through grace alone in the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The gospel is this. There is nothing that we can do, there is nothing that we can accomplish, there is no right that we have by our inheritance that brings us into the kingdom of God, that saves us. It is only the work of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection that we are able to have entrance into that. Yet we see here in these Jewish uh, Judaizers, these that are wanting to have this done, Something revealed about our own hearts. I think there's two things that they're really wrestling with in this. One is the desire to control and one is the desire to have credit. Now, that desire to control comes out because they're seeing things happening that they're not used to seeing. They're seeing people come in. Now, remember, they had been taught for their whole life that when Messiah comes, they're going to rule. And what they're finding out is that's not what's going to happen when the Messiah has come. They will be free, but they might still be in oppression from the Romans. And that was all right because God was doing something bigger and mightier. And in that place then, as the people who were oppressing them and those who were from other oppressed people were coming into the faith, were beginning to recognize Jesus. And and catch this, he says these Pharisees aren't just showing up uh, uh, to cause trouble, but that they believe in Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but they believe that they need to add something else so that they can control both who's coming in and how they are seen. If it gets too crazy, if people start bringing in their own ideas that I feel uncomfortable with, then I might lose my faith myself. So what does that mean their faith was resting on? Was it resting on the work that God had done? Was it resting on what Christ had accomplished for them? No in the place of control, we are resting completely on what we do. And so if we believe that our salvation and our entrance into this grand kingdom, this steadfast loving God who has pursued us is based on what I do, (laughs) then it's very easy for us to become disheartened and walk in despair. Because like Peter reminded them here, why are we going to burden them with this yoke that we ourselves cannot do? So when we desire control, what we're ultimately doing is saying, God, thank you for sending Jesus, but I've got it from here. Now, we obviously wouldn't say it like that, but our hearts are doing that. And when we have control, then we have to set up the mechanisms and the criteria by which we are saved. And we begin to add things to just believing in Jesus because that seems too good to be true. So we'll say, well, it has to do with how many times I read the Bible or what particular church I go to or what theology I hold to that I hold to these things, that I care for the poor in a certain way or I don't care for the poor in a certain way. And we add these little things to ourselves. And oftentimes we don't even think about anybody else out there or even hold them to that standard. But we hold ourselves to that standard. And when we see that we fail, we move to despair because we believe then we're not saved that we've somehow diminished God's love to what I do, as opposed to God's steadfast love that pursues me to the ends of the earth and beyond. And so we move to a place of control, which leads to despair. The second thing that we want, that I believe some of these Judaizers wanted, was credit So not only do we want control because we feel like things maybe are out of control, is we want credit. We want to be seen as those who were smart enough to pick this up. (laughs) We want to be seen as those who have done the hard work, gone the far yards that have put in the effort to be saved. So that people can look at us and go, look at how good Lee is. Look at how well he has worked. Look at how great he's doing. Because it puffs us up and it makes us go, yes. But when we desire credit, it ultimately leads us to isolation. (laughs) It leads us to move away from the kingdom people that are around us and even isolating ourselves from God. Because if our desire is credit (laughs) and our hearts, while they lie to us often, will also spring out the truth with help of Holy Spirit and tells us, you've not done it right, <laughs> you've not done enough, <laughs> you're still missing the point, you're not quite there, and when we hear those things, if our desire is credit, then we begin to hide ourselves away, because we don't want to be found out. And so we, we fudge. <laughs> when someone says, how you going? Yeah, Good. In Australia, when most of the time we don't say good, we say not bad, (laughs) which makes you have to guess what really is going on (laughs) in somebody's life. That's what happens. There's isolation because we want credit. But Peter here again drives to the heart of this and says, it's not about the things that you do. It's not about the things that you keep. It's not about your control and your credit. It is the free gift of God that comes in to unite you as people who humbly accept that God has saved us through Christ alone. He goes on to remind us that it is God who does this. And we just believe. So what does that mean? If our desire is for control or for credit, ultimately it means that we don't trust God. We have a lack of trust believing that God has done what he said he was going to do. That he would pursue us to bring us back into relationship with himself with ourselves, with all others, in the very place that we live. That he would pursue us and provide the way so that we can move from our unrighteousness into the righteousness of Christ himself. That God has made the substitute for us in Christ on the cross. That his self-sacrificing act of love moves us to the place where we can respond by saying, Yes, I believe. And in that belief, I trust that there is nothing I can do to be saved except believe that you have done it. And when we move to that place, when our heart begins to sing that song, then it becomes so much harder for us to deny what God has done. We no longer are looking at ourselves to be the arbiter, to be the one who determines what our position is with God today. <laughs> we see it only through God's eyes, who sees us completely and wholly in Christ and his holiness. There was a man who went to church in the church that I grew up in, and you would ask him, How's, how are you going with Jesus. And he'd say, I think I did enough today. That was his response. If you are thinking you've done enough today or you haven't done enough today, hear me. The answer is no. (laughs) You haven't done enough and you have done it. No, that's the wrong question. The question is, do I believe Jesus did enough for me to be in relationship with God today? Do I believe that Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection has moved me to a place that I am completely 100% proof in God's household? Now, James who's sort of leading the church there in Jerusalem, not sort of, he is, with others. As he's looking at this and he hears what Peter says and he hears from Paul and Barnabas, he says, we need to tell the Gentiles, we're not gonna burden them. So basically he says to these Judaizers, keep it down, you're wrong, shut your mouths. <laughs> don't put that on them, right? They don't stop, by the way. <laughs> and neither do our hearts, by the way. We continue to want to add things, forgetting the work that Jesus has done and how complete it is. Right? But what he does do is he says, however, <laughs> however, let's remind them of these things that have been proclaimed throughout all of the world, these rules of Moses. He says, let's ask them not to, uh, to, to eat food that has been polluted by idols, Let's ask them not to participate in sexual immorality or not to have food that has blood in it or that has been strangled. And in some sense, these are ritual rules that are there, really about how they were to engage with God, how Judaizers were, the Jews were able to engage with God. They were ways to keep them unclean. They were those things that God in the Old Testament, as he was calling his people out, set aside for them to be identified as different. Now, circumcision was that too. However, now baptism and the Holy Spirit were being shown forth. And so it replaces that idea of this circumcision showing how different they are. It fulfills it and makes it more fuller for us. And, And so there's this idea, though, that there are some things, because you are walking with your brothers and sisters, that you don't do. Don't go running off to temple prostitutes, basically. (laughs) Well, that, I mean, it sort of makes sense to us, right, in the back of our minds. But remember, just as the Judaizers, right, were coming in saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is getting out of control, and we need to make sure, right, that, that people do the things that they're supposed to do according to Moses. These Greeks, right, these Romans who were coming in have had sort of free reign in their religion, in their following after all their gods. For the same reasons, trying to prove themselves, trying to get what they want. And and we're going to talk more about this next week when we look at Acts chapter 17. But at this point, what Peter and James ultimately are saying is don't do things because you are living in community, right? Don't do things that are going to harm your brothers and sisters, that there are certain things that, while they're not the things that save you, are good or beneficial for you, just simply for the fact that we want to live in harmony together. Remember, up until Peter walking into Cornelius' house, they really were not supposed to enter in, and all of a sudden, Peter, 10 years ago, is saying, hey, we're all together now. <laughs> So there's still this sort of growing pains within this multinational, diverse collection of followers of Jesus, figuring out how do we walk in that. So I would put it this way, for us today, in a practical level. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. You who walk in the Restoration Church movement, which is the part of the churches of Christ, you've probably heard that. They say we have no creed but Christ, but that sounds awfully like a creed to me. We at Fremantle Church have the benefit of being both within the stream very deeply of the Reformation movement as we walk among our Presbyterian brothers and sisters as we walk in the covenantal theology that God shows forth within Scripture. And we also then walk within our restoration movement, brothers and sisters, that say ultimately what we know is the truth is that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. And that if you can come to agreement in that, and then how that works out is this. We know... That in essentials, we have unity. It will show itself in different ways, in different churches. Globally, it looks massively different than it does here. In non-essentials, then, that means liberty. That we don't begin to judge and say, well, you're not quite a Christian, you're half a Christian, you're almost a follower of Jesus. We rest in the fact that they say, yes, it's by faith in Christ alone that we are saved, that we have entrance, that we move from enemy to child. Then we say, you're my brother and sister. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's walk together. Let's see how God takes our diversity and blends it and mixes it in a way that brings glory to God. That we hold things loosely that are secondary and 3rd thirdly not primary, but those things that are primary, we keep. Back in the book of Galatians, Paul spells out as he's dealing with this issue of circumcision and Moses' law, he says, it is neither circumcision or non-circumcision, but it is faith working itself out in love. He stole that from Peter. He got that from this council. That it's not about some external thing that we use to judge ourselves so that we can have control or credit. But it is resting in our faith and trust in God and allowing that to work out in us in love. Let me pray. God, we give you glory and honor because it is only in your work that we are able to come to this place. It is only in your work that we are able to walk in this way, that you've made us your children, you have brought us in, that there's nothing that we can do that will separate us from you because we are in Christ and there's nothing that we can do that can put us there. It is all because of Jesus and the faith that you give us to have in him. So give us faith. That's what we ask today. Pour out your faith so that we can trust and believe. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up?